Mark 1, 12 to 20. At once the Spirit sent him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent or turn about and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the sea, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. See, to, to my mind, there is uh, something about this time of year, the, the fall, that second to New Year's sets in motion this kind of cascade of planning and preparation. It's as though the summer and the start of the school year kind of conspire together to inject some sort of energy into particular places and households. And there are like new budgets, there's more robust plans, there's goals, there's then action plans to attend to those goals and budgets, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that this is just a stage of life thing, that is if you only have like small humans in your care. No, I think that this is across the board because, you, and you'll know what I'm talking about, maybe this past week you just had a draft. And if you know, you know. And um, now you are ready for a new season. I'm talking about fantasy football, if you didn't know. I got some blank stares, and so um, there you go. So if now you're ready for a new season, you're prepared to do things, or if that means nothing to you, you are now to the tail end of the third quarter, so you are making a push in that. Or it's simply that you are, like, school has started for you as an adult, and you're like, my goodness, I have to figure out what it means to study again because I've not been doing that for a few months. Whatever that might be, there is something about the psychology of this time of year that shifts our gears into go. And it's almost reflexive at, that, at, at this point, in, at least in my life, and I think this is even applicable in the church. There's this impulse to kind of just take on board whatever is happening around us and follow that in. It's like this phenomenon just pulls us in. And for good and for ill, like the church can seek, and I'm talking like globally, uh, can seek to just ride the cultural wave, to, to tap into the energy of the fall. And so, you know, you have like a vision series. The irony is that the next four weeks are a vision series. So I, I, I get that, bear with me. Uh, but, but we like tap into this and we wanna ride that cultural wave and hope that by riding that cultural wave of go, it will empower us to become the type of people, as the prophet Micah talks about, of justice and love and mercy. And it's as though we think that we can receive some sort of exterior power impulse to then propel the life of Christ. And so we do, and we get energized, but, but let me just ask this simple question. Like, what if all of our energy and efforts are pointed at the wrong things? Did you ever think about that? Like, it would be terribly unfortunate if you or me or we collectively crushed the false start. That is what we, like, got our schedules in order. We got our to-do lists mostly done, let's be honest. 
And yet in the midst of that, we were racked by anxiety. We were rushing from one place to the next. And we were verging on the, like, the, the line of rude with every person we interacted with, especially the people we love the most in the world. Wouldn't it be unfortunate if we crushed the false start and yet we had no sort of like, internal disposition of peace? It's almost as though our, our whole life would have been subsumed by that go impulse. What if all of our energies and efforts are pointed at the wrong things? And see, the, the late philosopher Dallas Willard, he had a helpful way of unpacking this. And usually, and we'll get to a quote later on in the teaching that, that does need some like, like a, a cup of tea in an afternoon to get through. But th this one's pretty simple. He said it this way. He said, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It is who you become. That's what you'll take into eternity. So the thing that you will take into eternity, according to Dallas Willard, it's not what you do, but it is who you become. And my prayer for today and really for the next few weeks is that we might leverage the energy of the season, not to accomplish our to-do lists, though those are important, not to reach our goals, though those may be important, but rather so that we could attend to that most important thing, namely who we are becoming. Because I will tell you this, you are becoming someone right now. There's this little statement, character is destiny. Like right now, you are becoming who you will be. So if you were to take an inventory of who you are right now, who is that person? That is setting a trajectory, but that does not have to be who you will be. Instead, you can disrupt that with a different way. See, elsewhere, Willard has a little expression that I often find bouncing around my mind, and the expression goes like this, eternity is now in session. In fact, that little phrase was turned into a book by a pastor author named John Ortberg, Eternity is Now in Session, which is a good book. I would recommend it to a friend. Uh, but, but these two statements, the most important thing is who you become, and eternity and now in session, they create sort of a map. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Just check this out. If the most important thing in life is who we become, and who we become is what we will take into eternity, and eternity is now in session, then the life we live here and now is of the utmost significance. There's a temptation to like cast vision, whatever the heck that even means, and draw you into some sort of, I don't know, 30,000 foot expansive panorama of who Gateway could be. The truth is we have little to no control of who this church will become. You have a lot of agency of that, but we don't. And so rather than doing that, I, I would rather lean into the present here and just talk about this. The, the life we live here and now is of the utmost significance because it is one thing to forecast and make plans for a season of our lives and an altogether different thing to imagine a day or a season in light of the lives we will take into all eternity. In other words, it's like this backcasting. We imagine who we want to be, and then we think backward toward the life we're living now, and what does it mean for the Spirit to attend to me and help me to abide right now so that I might move toward obedience? Are we, are we tracking here? This is what we're going to talk about today, and then the values that undergird this over the next three weeks. See, uh, this might be, if this feels kind of like squishy and you're wondering why you came to church today, let me offer you this question. Um, have you ever considered who you might be when you were 60, 70, or God willing, like 80 years old? It's a wrinklier you. Yeah? 
How's it? Just like, what is that? Who is that person? And I'm not, I'm not necessarily talking about like what you're doing per se, though that can be significant. I'm talking about the character that you carry in life. Are, are you the type of person at this stage who actually has peace? <laughs> you see, I, I, maybe it's an occupational hazard because I, you know, I'm like writing these teachings and I'm reading these things. And so maybe I just find myself thinking more about this, but often I do. I'm like, will there be more hypocrisy or will there be integrity? Will I actually be able to say things up here with confidence, knowing that I'm actually walking into this so I can invite you to a place? This is, this is just front and center in my mind. I don't pretend that it's in yours. But that's part of my job is I get to invite you into a space where you start to think differently about how Jesus actually cares about the spreadsheets you're making. Like this is the beauty of Jesus. He wants to be involved in these things. And of all the possibilities available to us, you know, 60, 70, 80 year olds, you, I imagine none of us thought of ourselves as that person. You know the person. The world seems to chafe against them at every turn. If they're at a wedding, it's the color scheme. If they're at a restaurant, the, the server's either too fast or too slow. The coffee is too hot or too cold. It's like all of life is a rash. And they're itchy. See, the, my guess is no one sees themselves as this. Uh, perhaps you see yourself as this wise, tenacious person who's at peace with the full scope of their life, like their body, their finances, all of it. That's at least, maybe I'm the idealist in the room. You're like, no, I'm a realist. I'm the saggy person who has arthritis. It's like, I don't think that way. I'm like, no, this is who I am. I have peace in my body, my finances, my relationships. I am not an old crotchety person. And yet, why do we know so many old crotchety people who are maybe even just like 35? Like, how do you get there? How do you get to peace or chaos? I don't think it's accidentally. And maybe you get to chaos by accident, but I think that you can disrupt that with peace, namely the peace of Jesus. And so that's why as a church, we are committed to this specific thing, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city. Just say this with me, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city. This is not something unique to us. You can find a number of churches that have the same thing and articulate it and embody it with different values. So today what I want to do over the course of our time is I, I want to just highlight, like hover over two words, well, they're one word, phrase, and a person, namely Jesus and the way. And as we look at Jesus and the way, it will, in a short order, kind of give us a bearing of where we're headed over the next few weeks. So first, if you're a note taker, th these are, this is the word, Jesus. See, in order for us to kind of remain in this pursuit of Jesus, in fact, in order for us to remain in a steadfast pursuit of Jesus, it is vital for us to hold in our imaginations who we want to become in the future, because that vision will determine how we choose to live today. And, and for us here at Gateway, the not just ideal, but the hope is that Jesus will indeed be the center and the end of that vision. The, the hope of who we will become is Jesus of Nazareth because he is the one who perfectly embodies justice and love and mercy as the prophet Micah defined it. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you, you'll see this image of Jesus come forward. This is the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says this, and we all, that is this community who have given their allegiance to Jesus. So, so if you're here this morning and you're saying yes to Jesus, 
listen up. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. That's like a hyperlink back to the prophet Moses. If you're reading through the Exodus account, that's where you find your boy Moses. And he will encounter the glory of the living God, Yahweh, face to face. And he'll come out of those meetings aglow. Have you ever had a meeting where you're like, that went really well? And and people say, oh, you're glowing. Or a a woman who's with child, like, oh, you're glowing. I don't know if that's the same thing, but for the illustration, just keep going. Like, Moses is coming out of these things, having encountered the glory of the living God. And now Paul is saying, we all, there's no veil. We have that same, like, type of vibrance. We are, with unveiled faces, contemplating, thinking, considering the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is not as outlandish as it sounds. There's a couple things happening here. One, Jesus is the telos. He is the goal. In other words, this is the trajectory where we are looking to see what does it mean to be truly human? What does a life of justice and love and mercy look like? What does it mean to attend to and embody that? And there's another aspect here, which is this idea of transformation, which we'll get into into a couple weeks, but just consider this. Like, if you want to become a world-class chef, there are some requisite things that you need to take on board. They would be things like this. You have to enter a kitchen. To be a world-class chef, a kitchen is a requisite. You have to know the tools. You have to taste the ingredients. You have to hone your skills. You have to try. You have to fail. And then, over the course of time, you might actually have something to offer the world. If you're going to, I don't know, put on a lot of lean muscle mass, there is a system. There's a goal and a system that you have to work through in order to get to this goal. This is not super complicated. We do this in all of our life, but seldom do we apply it to our discipleship to Jesus. That's all we're trying to do here, folks. It's nothing novel. See, if you desire to follow Jesus, you have to know the destination so you can plot your path. So if we are to be with Jesus, have we considered who this Jesus is? I don't know the Jesus that you have in your imagination from, I don't know, like your frustrating youth group days or your disaffected millennial days, maybe you're still in them like me, but who is this Jesus? And what I would commend to you are the scriptures to see who Jesus is. So go with me back to Mark chapter one if you're not there already. Look at how Mark invites us to see Jesus. This is uh, in in the verses immediately preceding our passage. So scroll down or look down to Mark 1.9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. So just a little geography here, sorry for the absence of a map. You have Galilee in the north, and then you're gonna have the Sea of Galilee right up there, or the Sea of Tiberias. And in that space, you're gonna have the, the Nazareth. It's gonna be like this little quarry area, and Jesus is up in that space. And he's coming from that space down to the River Jordan and was baptized by John there, verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, we're asking, who is this Jesus? Just as he's coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. That sounds like a a trippy moment. Just commentary there. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from the heavens declaring, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So if you recall the story, you have John the baptizer who's out in the wilderness, 
And he's offering this baptism of repentance, which essentially is this, that there is a new way that God is at work. It's not through the corrupt temple apparatus, no. It's going to be through this new venture. So come and turn afresh. And so people in droves are going out to John the Baptist. He's the dude who's eating bugs and is covered in a camel hair. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, that's a good Halloween costume, FYI. So, but I, I suppose you would have to take the bugs with you and eat them along the way, no? So there, people are going out to, to John, and they're being baptized, and there we encounter Jesus in this scene. He, is, he goes and he receives this. He says, yes, the, the movement of renewal that God is, is, is on about, I am up with, I'm going to do that. And then he enters into the baptismal waters, and he comes out, and the cry from heaven is, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is Jesus. So whoever or however you have imagined Jesus to be in the past, hear this afresh. Jesus is the one who stands in the wake of his Father's love. He stands secure in the blessedness of the Heavenly Father. And then from that place of security, what you might call secure attachment, Jesus then is able to withstand testing in the wilderness, and then he has these words on his lips. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, or turn and trust the gospel. So Jesus has his identity affirmed, and then he makes this declaration. This is who Jesus is. This is the one in whose image we are being transformed. If we would consider the glory of God. We are being essentially invited into a place of security and belonging in the Father's love. This is where we start to say yes and amen, because as you register that information, my hope is it gets down into the core of who you are, that there is a better word being spoken over to you in Christ Jesus. But that's not the end. And this is, this is what I love, is Jesus, there he stands, affirmed by the heavens, empowered by the Spirit, but he does not choose to go it alone. Instead, he begins to extend this invitation, which comes and looks like this. Go, go down to verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother casting a net into the lake. Why? Because they're fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once, or immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, when you, when you hear this passage, how many of you, your brain goes to, like, evangelism? Any, none of you? None of you? My brain does. I was like, that's, that has been the impulse. These are the sermons that I've heard preached on this, like, go and draw them in, catch them, draw them in. Well, the sobering reality is that Jesus' words are less about drawing people in through evangelism, and they're more about confrontation. See, uh, Jesus is tapping into this, uh, this prophetic passage on divine justice. When, when he says, I'll send you out for people, or I'll make you become fishers of men, depending on your translation, he, he's tapping into this passage. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord. Sound familiar? He goes on, and they shall catch them, and afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt for them, and where? Every mountain, and every hill, and out of every, and out of the clefts of the rock. 
For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. You see, the people to whom Yahweh sent the prophet Jeremiah are people who are awash with evil, which means that their devotion is divided. But what you encounter through the prophet Jeremiah is that that he would be coming to people, calling them back to allegiance, and these would be the very people who on one moment would be offering a gift at the temple. They would be offering, I don't know, a grain offering or a goodwill or like one of those things. And then the very next day, those same people would be outside the city gates and they would be offering up their own children as, as as an offering to a foreign god. These are people whose hearts had not singular devotion, but they were spread thin. So as Jeremiah comes with this declaration, I am sending for many fishers, and in essence, he is saying that he is calling for these people to come back, for them to be caught up in singular devotion to Yahweh. My guess is that feeling of being caught is something like that raw exposure you feel if you do drive a vehicle when the lights come on behind you. Recently, I was driving down the freeway, down the 235, and um, like an emergency vehicle was coming up, and I, to my knowledge, had committed no like infraction. I'm, I'm a dad in a minivan, so I'm like, I'm not the dad in the minivan who's speeding. I'm like rolling grandpa style. I'm like, there's nothing, what did I do? Do I have a light up? But the lights come on, and it's like this, I'm flooded with anxiety. And fortunately, the vehicle then goes past me, and I'm like, have to come down from whatever that moment was. But I imagine that's what it feels like to be caught. It's like those lights come on and this feeling like raw exposure wells up in us. You see, tucked into Jesus's words is that type of an invitation. Because these people know the scriptures. Most boys and girls, by the time they're 13, they have the Torah committed to memory. Why? Because it's their media. It's their Pokemon. It's their Spotify. That's what they know. So they know these words of Jeremiah. So to hear Jesus, a rabbi, extend that call. But it's not just that they're caught as the ones who are rebellious. I think that is a part, but it's also that Jesus is inviting them into the work. He's inviting them to participate. Come and follow me. To follow a rabbi is to do a few things. It is to be with your rabbi. It is to become like your rabbi. So you can do what your rabbi did. It's pretty simple. Proximity. There's this idiom, you'd be covered in the dust of your rabbi. To be covered in the dust was an idiom that you were so close that as your rabbi walked in the sand, and the dirt and the dust from their sandals kicked up that it would cloak you. This is how people would be identified. These are like the social or the, the virtue signals of the day is that they would be covered in the dust of the rabbi. Jesus has just invited these fishermen to come and participate, to catch other people. The irony is that they're not qualified. They might be among those who like have the Torah memorized, but they're not Ivy League contenders. They're not people who have exceeded the four points of the GPA and now have like a four point. This is not them. They're essentially the ones who were not chosen. Jesus chooses them as he chooses us. See, Jesus' call is both a call to security 
in the Father's love and a call to a new way of life. So if that's Jesus, the one secure in the Father's love, able to withstand the testing and make a declaration but not do it alone and invite others in, if that is Jesus, what's the way? Well, if you're taking notes, this is the way. If you turn forward in Mark, uh, particularly in Mark chapter 8, this is what you encounter. This is where the way, to my mind, comes into sharp relief. This is Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him, see, with his disciples. See, there's this notion that Jesus only had the 12. There's like the inner, inner core of the three, and then there's the 12. Well, Jesus also has moments where he's sending out the 70 or the 72. And then there's the crowds, these people who might be with Jesus or they might just be entertained by Jesus. And so this is who's here. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, this is a call to discipleship, if anyone would be my disciple, let him or her deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city is at its core about self-denial. So welcome to church. Uh, just here to remind you that your discipleship to Jesus is beautiful and it's about denying yourself. But, but it's also about so much more. See, at first blush, I think that this can be a little confusing. You might ask, how can I follow the way of Jesus vacant of myself? Aren't the scriptures a love letter to me? Maybe. Maybe in some parts there's where the affections of God and Christ are revealed. But the purposes of the scriptures are to tell this unified story that leads to and find their fulfillment in Jesus. This is what we encounter. If Jesus is the one secure in the Father's love, this is his way. It's a way of self-denial, which curiously is epitomized on the cross. Jesus does not call us to something he himself is not willing to do. So if you want to follow someone with integrity, Jesus of Nazareth is your boy. In short, the call of Jesus is to deny ourselves, which, which I think today looks something like denying our vision of the good life, or at least calling it into question, it, placing it under strict scrutiny, and then allowing it to be filtered by a way that leads to life. By the way, this is the whole thing we just did in the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> the, the way that would lead to life as articulated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. See, the journey between the call and, the, and trust, because there's something, that, there's an invitation, but if we don't trust that, then there's no participation. So the journey between the call and the trust, that is called faith. Faith is this thing that is a gift, that is awakened in us, and it is a thing that we practice, that we build it up, and we ask the Spirit of the living God to join us to build us up in our faith. Because we are not alone in it, as Jesus does not want to be alone in it. So for a moment, just turn around, and if you're in the very back, just look down. Turn around and notice the people around you. Internet, I got you. For good and for ill, in this season, these can be the people, if you want, who will remind you of what faithfulness looks like. And we will remind you of what disappointment looks like as well. But in those places of joy and disappointment, there is something that sustains us. This is God present to us by the Spirit. This is the way. 
It is the way of faith where we release, we are released from bitterness and greed and selfish ambition that riddle our hearts and we can then receive a way that is different than that. A way that gives way in forgiveness, a way that is centered on others, not ourselves, and ultimately a way of love. See, the way of Jesus is far more than just correct thinking about theology and the Bible. The way of Jesus is far more than like right living, that's just ethics. And you can have right thinking about the Bible and you can even have right living when it comes to it, but you could be vacant of a life with Jesus. See, in fact, it's like this synergistic thing that the Spirit draws these together and through faithfulness and through love, these things, we start to actually change. Do you, do you know that you can actually change? Just think again about that person that you want to become. Now think about who you are. Okay, that's easier. Now, who were you five years ago? Like, we are constantly changing. Why not with Jesus? Why not deeper into a life of love and intimacy with Jesus? And if that sounds squishy, chat to me about it because I think that I could convince you otherwise because Jesus is coming to confront us, to draw us into a place of life. To, to land, I just want to go here with this is that lengthy Willard quote. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. And we'll get into a little bit of the how in the forthcoming weeks, but this says it well, to direct and redirect our minds to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may be well challenged, may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits not the law of gravity and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. And listen to this. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. See, our hope is that Jesus will be both goal and guide, that Jesus will be the one whom our souls long for. We sing songs like, bless the Lord, O my soul. We read the Psalms that invite us to do the same. But have you considered what is the great longing of your soul? And think about, it's not that you like possess a soul, it's that you are a soul. So what is your great longing? I can think of no more pressing question than that. And imagine if we leverage the energy of this season to like amplify the volume of that question in our imagination. Is Jesus the great longing of my soul? What does that mean? What does that look like? If these were the questions, I'm not saying like become a monk and like be like Thomas Merton and go into seclusion or something like that, but maybe be some sort of modern day monk where you just draw your life constantly, direct and redirect your mind. We'll not leave you hanging with this. Presence, formation, and renewal are forthcoming. And God willing, by the end of the fall, we'll actually have like a practical tool to put in your hands where you can say, okay, like I can have, like I, I can build out some sort of framework to move toward this goal of being with and becoming like Jesus. And so let me just, let me just uh, steal these words of Thomas Burton as we close. There is only one problem 
on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend, to discover myself in discovering God. If I find him, I will find myself, and if I find my true self, I will find him. I think the way of Jesus can be a place where we find the justice, love, and mercy we desperately long for. And it can be the place where we are hidden with God in Christ. It might take us slowing down, it might take us showing up, but I think it can be done. Mm -hmm.